Abacuc is where we're at. That's the little minor prophet that we're studying together throughout the summer. It might even go into the fall a little bit. And uh, so far, Habakkuk has had a real problem with God. He, he's got this issue going on, and he's got this problem with God. And his problem with God is, is that he's looking around at the southern kingdom called Judah, which is comprised of ten tribes of Israel. There's the northern kingdom. They've been wiped out by this time. And so Judah is the, the remaining chosen people of God. And Judah, as a nation, they have fallen away from worshiping God, and now they're worshiping idols. And so Habakkuk is looking at God, and he's going like, I don't understand how you let this happen. I don't know why you're letting this take place. I've got a real problem, God, with what's happening in Judah. These things shouldn't be happening. Are you paying attention to what's going on? And God comes along, and he says to him, he says, you know what? Hap, I've got this. What you don't know is that there are things that are happening beyond your comprehension. You don't get what I'm about ready to do. And Habakkuk's like, all right, God, so what are you going to do? And God says, well, listen, here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, and I'm going to use that wicked, evil nation, and I'm going to have them come and bring discipline to my people, to my people Judah. For their sins, for their rebellion, I'm going to use this wicked, evil nation to bring discipline to Judah. And Habakkuk is like, now he's freaking out because he's going like, God, how can you do this? How, are you not paying attention? I don't understand, God, how you can do this. How can you take somebody as wicked as the Chaldeans, C-H-A-L-D, we'll abbreviate it, wicked as Chaldeans, and they're going to come and they're going to bring discipline to Judah. And, and that, that to, to me does not make any sense is what Habakkuk is saying. He goes, it, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't equate to me that you would take somebody more wicked than Judah to bring discipline to them. I, it just, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. Why would you do something like that? And what God says to Habakkuk, he has this sweet little conversation, this dialogue with Habakkuk, and he goes, oh, my sweet boy, you just don't get it. You are very limited in what you know. You're very limited in what you see going on around you. Habakkuk is very much like you and I. We think we have a really good picture of everything that's going on, and in reality, we're very limited in our scope of understanding, our scope of knowledge, our scope of, of clarity of really what's happening. And so what, what God is saying to Habakkuk, he goes like, dude, you don't even know what's going on 100 yards behind you. Your back is turned. You don't know what's going on back there. You don't know what's going on on the other side of Judah. You don't know what's happening with Babylon, the Chaldeans. 
You have no clue what I'm about ready to do there. So you have a very limited scope, a very limited understanding of who you are in, in compared to the grand schemes. And by the way, I have an unlimited understanding. I have an unlimited scope of what's going on. I know what's happening. By the way, Hab, guess what? Tomorrow is not something that I know about. Tomorrow, I'm already there. And Habakkuk's like, oh, okay. But he says, I'm just, I'm just not getting it, God. I don't understand why you're doing it. And here's the thing that we have going on in our minds. We could be asking the same kind of a question to God. Because if you take a look at the things that have just happened over the last two weeks, like the shooting in Ohio, the shooting in El Paso, and then the thing that took place in Philadelphia just earlier this, this last week, it's, it's like mind-blowing because we're thinking, God, how could you let these things go on? Why would you allow this evil to step in and produce itself like that? Because after all, we think that you're great. We think that you're awesome. We know that you have all this stuff. And so from there, we've got this question that begins to pull on our soul. And it's like this. If God is infinite, sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, and he can do whatever pleases him, then what do we do when we run into pain, suffering, and loss, and hurt in our own lives? Because after all, we thank God that you are good and you are sovereign. But you allow those things to exist in our lives. Why do you do that, God? The last time that we talked here together about Habakkuk, which a couple weeks ago, we kind of unpacked that idea of, of what the Bible has to say about those kind of questions. And there are two responses that are given by people when we're asking those questions, because it's the, it's the big question of life, is it not? We want to know, God, what's going on? Why aren't you doing something? How do you let this stuff happen? We have this big question mark over our lives. And the way that people respond will be one of two ways. And it depends on where you stand in relationship to God. So the first one is, the first reaction is that we react when we're apart from God. When God is not a part of our lives. And that reaction is that we react out of pride. We're proud. And it looks maybe something like this. We believe that if God would have just done it our way, it would have turned out different. Whatever that circumstance is, whatever the deal is, whatever the wrong is, whatever's going on, if God would have gotten a hold of me and asked me for my opinion, I would have told him what to do, and if he would have done what I told him to do, things would have turned out different, and, but he didn't ask, and so this is why we're stuck with what we've got. We've got this thing going on right here, and that's a heart of pride, and that heart of pride believes it knows better than God. That's the way we respond when we're not walking with Jesus. But in Habakkuk 2, it tells us that when we walk with God, there's a difference of a response that we bring to it. And that response is that the righteous will live by faith. Let that sink in for a minute. If you're walking with Jesus, 
then you're considered to be under the umbrella of Christ. His blood brings you righteousness that you don't deserve or that you have not earned. It is his righteousness given to you. And then we start to walk with Jesus. We walk by faith. That, that means that we don't always have an answer for the why. We don't know why, but what we do do is we trust. We trust that in the darkest of days, God is good. He is loving. He's at work to redeem and reconcile all things to himself. So the righteous, they live by faith in the face of tragedy. They live by faith in the face of loss. They live by faith in the face of devastation and disrepute. Because we walk with Jesus, we no longer have to have every question answered. We can just say, because I know you know better than I do, I'm going to walk by faith. That means that we really can't explain it. We just know that God is good. We know that God's accomplishing what is good, even in the middle of the pain. We know that he's not always the source of our pain, but what he will usually do is take that he never wastes the pain of your life. I want to write that one down. That's a good one. God never wastes your pain. He uses it for his glory and for your growth. And so it, it, it kind of throws us off a little bit because we don't see the activity of God in that light that it's good for us. And so we're going to look at Habakkuk 2 and we're going to start with verse 6. Here's what's going to happen. God is going to use the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. He's going to use their wickedness to bring dis discipline to Judah, his people. So here's where it starts. He says, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Here's what God's doing. He's coming to Judah and he's saying, I'm going to discipline you with the Chaldeans. I'm going to bring this discipline in your life because the discipline here is for correction. It's because you're off track. You're going the wrong way. You're doing the wrong things. And so because I love you, I'm going to discipline you to bring you back to the place where you're back in line with the things that I'm calling you to do. But what he also says now to the Chaldeans, and this is part of Habakkuk's complaint, is you're using these awful, wicked people to bring discipline? It doesn't make sense. And God's saying to Habakkuk, now listen to me. Here's what's going to happen to the Chaldeans, to the Babylonians. Because what they're going to get is not God's discipline. They're going to get God's wrath. God is going to bring his wrath and he's going to bring it against, against the Chaldeans. Why? Because they have used and abused people and the remnant of people who are still there, who are still hanging out, who have been overthrown, who've been run over, all the terror that they were inflicting upon those people, those people are now going to rise up against the Chaldeans and they're going to inflict that same terror onto them. 
We see this throughout history. I mean, if you start reading through the books of history, you will find out whenever there has been a regime that has been brutal and bloody and, and just killing people by the hundreds, all of a sudden the people have had enough and they rise up against that leader and they overthrow that leader and they inflict the same pain upon him and they beat the leader and then they hang the leader and then they decapitate him and they burn him and they go like, isn't that good? And we call that God's justice. Now some of you are going like, you know, you're really going to talk about wrath today? I brought my family with me. I brought my kids, Pastor Ken. I even brought my neighbor. I can't believe you're talking about wrath. Listen, I want to tell you something. If it's in the Bible, we're going to talk about it. And if you brought your friends or whoever with you today, it's apparently because God thinks they need to hear this. I mean, you need something to talk about at lunchtime besides me. So what's going to happen is God is going to come upon the Chaldeans and he is going to bring his wrath upon them because of their rebellion and their arrogance. Let's continue to read on, verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. So here the text is saying, not only have the Chaldeans hard-pressed people, beat them up, conquered them, they have made their lives safe off of the blood and off of the work of others. They're living in opulence, while the rest of them are living hard-pressed, just trying to get by. And so the Bible says, on that day, woe to you. Even the walls of safety will cry out their guilt. It's kind of like this is a way of stirring up creation against it. Continue on to verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Get that one. Let's hear it again. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. As the waters overflow the sea, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Now this idea of the cup of the Lord, that's symbolic for the wrath of God. So if you think back to when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, in his prayer to, to his father, he said, if this cup can be passed by me, in other words, if I don't have to participate in this cup of your wrath, God, let's find another way. But not my will, your will be done. And Jesus took God's wrath on the cross for us. The cup of wrath. So here we have this cup of wrath of God it's going to come around to the Chaldeans. They're going to experience the wrath 
of God on their lives as that are a people. And this cup is coming to the Chaldeans, and he's going to use, even though he's using them as an instrument to discipline his people, God says, my wrath will burn against you for your rebellion against me. Aren't you glad you came to church today? What a happy, happy day. So let's move on. We're almost done with this happy part, okay? We'll read verse 17. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities, to all who dwell in them. Now we're going we're gonna to talk here just for a minute because we live in a society that is tolerant. And, and because we're tolerant, we really don't like the idea that God could be wrathful, that God would have his wrath poured out towards sin. We don't, we don't like it because it kind of makes us look like we're a little bit backwoodsy rednecks. Oh, wait a minute, we are. <laughs> we just don't want our spirituality to look like, we want to look sophisticated in our, in our spirituality. We want to look like we've really got it all put together, and yet when you read in the Bible, all of a sudden you start reading about God's wrath being poured out on the rebellious people, that God actually has judgment that he's going to bring towards those who hate him, that God is going to, he's already created this place, and you know the name of it, is hell, and people don't like hearing about wrath, Sin, hell, and judgment. They're going like, you know what? If we could just eliminate those thoughts from, from the Bible, we'd be doing ourselves a whole big favor because it just kind of like upsets us. We don't like it. We'd rather those parts of the Bible not be there. And here's what's happened to us, honestly, which is very unfortunate if I can use that word in, in the most spiritual sense. What you're not going to find in Fremont County is a slew of angry atheists. And I'm not saying that they're not here. I'm just saying that they don't make up predominantly who we are in Fremont County, in our little society out here in the West. Instead, we have something that I think is far worse that's plaguing us as a community, as a society, which is this. Back of our mind, knowledge of God. In other words, we would have a conversation with someone and they would say, oh yeah, of course there's a God. Have you looked at those mountains? Have you been up there? Have you been to the lakes? Have you seen the wildlife? There aren't very many people in, in Fremont County that would not acknowledge that there is a creator of all this good stuff. And, and as we live in, 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 in the context of, of this culture that we have playing out here in Lander, it's acknowledgement that there is a God. And where things get goofy is when you start talking about that God. Because people want to pick and choose aspects of God's character to negate other aspects of God's character. So kind of like this, based on nothing but their own speculation, people say this, God is love. And if God is love... There's no way he could do these things. There's no way he would pour out his wrath 
like this because he's a forgiving God. And I just can't fathom that he would do something like this that's that just not a part of the God that I, I want to worship, the God that I want to belong with. So what's happened is this. It's, it, we have this God, instead of being personal with him, he, he is now some sort of object to be studied so that, can, so that sin carries no weight at all in, in all of this stuff. So it's not rebellion against creator God of the universe. It's simply breaking the abject moral law. And it would look maybe something like this. We'd ask the question, why does God get so cranky when I just tell these little white lies? It's not like I'm really hurting anybody. Why does he get so frustrated when I have some wicked thoughts in my heart? I, I, I mean, this stuff is to myself. I'm not acting this stuff out. I, I'm not cussing the big ones. I'm not dropping the bombs on anybody. It's just those little ones that I use. So why does God get so frustrated with that? Why does he get so upset about that? Because here's why. Because we've removed him as someone we have a personal relationship with, and we've stepped into the idea of him being offended at our rebellion against him because it comes off that he's wrong or that he has got a wicked thought towards us, towards our rebellion. And so it's the thought of God being wrathful towards rebellion that doesn't set well with us or maybe a lot of people. And most of us don't even know we're supposed to have this personal relationship with God. Instead of thinking of him as someone to be studied, this is the problem that we have. We have this thought in the back of our mind about God, but what that thought really doesn't roll forward for us to engage into. What we've got is the thought back here is, I need to pick up my Bible. I need to study my Bible. I need to learn who God is. I need to learn about God. I need to look at all the characteristics and qualities of God. I need to understand this magnificence about God and yet we don't get the idea because it's never rolled forward into our brain thinking that what God is really calling us to is to step into this relationship of a personal relationship. He wants your heart. He's not asking you to check your brain at the door. That's not the case. He's not saying, just come to me and go like, okay, whatever. He actually wants you to engage with your brain. He wants you to, to step into it. But there's something that we need to notice here. And it's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. We've got this, the, the God's wrath being poured out on these Chaldeans through difficulty, suffering, and rebellion. And all these things are going to come out on the Chaldeans because of their disobedience. But difficult, suffering, pain are going to befall God's covenant people too. Difficulty, suffering, and pain are going to be a part of your life as well. I mean, if you've ever stepped into a relationship with God, if somebody ever told you that when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, that your life is going to be perfect, that you will never suffer again, that you will never know difficulty, that person lied to you. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. You know what the Bible actually teaches? The Bible actually teaches that there is going to be suffering. 
that there is going to be difficulties, that there are going to be hard times, that there are going to be times when you won't know the question why, but here's what the Bible teaches us, is that God is going to walk with us through it all. He doesn't leave us or forsake us. He's going to, when you can't walk, he's going to carry you. He's going to go before you. He's going to help you. He's going to help you navigate. He's going to help you to see. He's going to help you to know. But he never promised he's going to remove those obstacles. He's going to help you get through those obstacles. I mean, one of, if you go back to Psalm 23, and it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of what? I will fear no evil. Fear no evil. He didn't say that you're going to avoid death. He didn't say you're going to avoid difficult circumstances. He says you don't have to fear evil because my rod and my staff, they will comfort you. That's a promise from God. That's a promise for you. So here's the purpose of what's going to happen here in Habakkuk. The purpose is Judah is going to experience discipline. But the purpose on the Chaldeans is wrath. God's wrath is coming. And I want you to understand this, that God's wrath and God's discipline are two entirely different things. And that's what we're going to look at now. And so probably the best place to do that is when we go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to go. And, and let me just kind of give you a little backdrop on Hebrews, because you'll actually see some correlation between Hebrews, excuse me, and Habakkuk. And what you're going to see is that it, it, the author of this book of Hebrews is writing to a church who are being hard-pressed by non-believers. There are non-believers who are persecuting, who are imprisoning, who are beating, who are creating havoc for this church, in such a way that they're, they're losing heart, that they found great discouragement rather than encouragement. So the writer of Hebrews, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to bring encouragement to them. And this is how that in, he encourages them, starting with verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may, grow, may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In other words, all this stuff is coming down at you, but there is one who is there to bring you encouragement so that you don't grow weary, so you don't grow faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Basically, what the author is saying is, have you considered Jesus? I mean, that's, that's really what he wants us to do. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, he reminds the church that they have this high priest this empathetic high priest who re relates to all of the struggles we go through through life. Je Jesus experienced or walked through all the stuff that we walk through so that he could empathize with us in our plight in this broken world. And I'm just going to give you a few example, examples of the way that, that you and Jesus have things in common. Has anybody here ever been betrayed by a friend? Just, just slip your hand up. If you haven't been betrayed by a friend yet, just wait. It's coming. It's, it's, it's just going to happen. And I'll tell you what it feels like. It feels horrible. Betrayal is a wretched thing. Uh, guess what? Jesus was betrayed. He understands the pain of betrayal. 
And, and, and you know, here's what happens is when you've got someone that you love that you have lost. Has anybody here had a parent or a grandparent pass away? Put your hand up. We've all suffered loss. We have all experienced loss. Guess what? Jesus did. I don't know if you remember when Jesus went, when he found out that his buddy Lazarus was sick, he waited four days, and then he went, and even though Jesus knew that Lazarus was in that tomb, and that he was going to call him out, when Jesus came up and he saw the, the grief of death on all of his friends' face, it's the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus did what? Jesus wept. He understands loss. You, you know, I don't know if anybody here is, you know, got crazy family members like Cousin Eddie. Just nuts. Well, Jesus did. Matter of fact, at one point, Mary, his mother, and his half-brothers, they came looking for him, and they were going to drag him out of the ministry he was doing because they thought he had lost his mind. And he's like, really? I'm the Messiah. I actually had a hand in your creation. You should worship me instead of thinking I'm crazy. No, I don't need Prozac. And I'm just saying that that's, that's just a little bit, because what happens is, is that in Hebrews, the author of that is saying he can empathize with you. Look to Jesus. You're not alone. You haven't been abandoned. Of course, sinners are pressing into you. Don't you remember Jesus? Jesus did say that if they persecuted the prophets and if they persecuted Jesus, then they were surely going to persecute us. And I actually feel a little bit silly about talking to you about persecution because nobody in this room has been persecuted for their faith. I don't know anybody in, in, in all of Wyoming that has been persecuted because they're a Christian. They haven't gone to jail. They haven't been beaten. They haven't had their life taken from them. Now, maybe somebody made fun of you because you're a Christian. And I say, wah, wah, wah. Get used to it. I get made fun of all the time. Last week, I was called Mr. Baldy. <laughs> Took me a few days to get over that. Now we're going to move on Hebrews five to ver or Hebrews uh, twelve to verse five, and this is where it gets interesting. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So now we have difficulties and suffering and pain are used by God to discipline us because why? He loves us. And in order for us to get this, we've got to talk about discipline because I think most of us have the wrong idea about what discipline is. We think that discipline is in regards to punishment because of an act. So discipline in my house, and, and by the way, when I say my house, you can put my house growing up or in my house as kids were growing up. We had these things going on. And, and in my house, 
It was, you can't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And then when they did that, that meant it's time to get the belt. That was discipline to most of us. It's kind of this, yeah, 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 snap, you get discipline. But in reality, that's not discipline at all. Discipline, here's what discipline is. Here is a good um, definition of discipline. Dis discipline is a vision for the future that enacts things today. Discipline is a vision for the future that enacts things for today. So when Lorinda and I, our, Lorinda and I had a vision for our children, that vision put us to work every day to get to tomorrow. So we shaped, we molded, we chiseled, we busted out the belt when necessary. Why? Because we had a vision for our kids. It was that our kids would be vibrant, loving, obeying Jesus, operating well within this world, learning to be grateful for the life that God had granted to them. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that means for you? What it means for me, for us? That means there is work to do today. Unpleasant, difficult, long work today for tomorrow. And what the Bible just said is that God has a vision for you. God has this picture of you. And God is going to bring you to this place of the picture, the vision he has for your life. And that means there might be some difficult times coming for you to get to that place. Let's look at verse 7. For it is for discipline that you have endured. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. That means you're faking it. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, our fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Do you want discipline? No. Do you want holiness? Yes. Are you going to get discipline to get holiness? Yes. So just grab your bootstraps and take it. The discipline of God is ultimately for our good and leads to our holiness. And I love the next line because it's so honest. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained in it. So you've got this great text here where God is saying, I've got this picture, I've got this vision of you, I'm turning you into this person. We're going to need a chisel. We're going to chisel off some of those edges. We're going to knock down some, we're going to sand down some of those corners. And, and I'm absolutely going to break a couple of things to get you there. It may be your leg or it may be a habit. But he'll break you. But listen to me, God says. It's for your good, for your holiness, for righteousness grace and peace in me that all of this will occur. Now, sometimes we get that, but we really don't get it to the depth in which Jesus brings it to us. And so what I want to do is go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Because there's this amazing thing that goes on here, and it's, it's really quite profound because this is the Apostle Paul speaking in this, and it's starting with verse 7. And so it says, 
so to keep me from becoming conceited. Let's just stop there just for a second because he hasn't become conceited. He says to keep me from becoming conceited, there's something that's going to take place and whatever is about to happen to our boy Paul is not because he's done something wrong. It's not punitive. God is not punishing Paul. Paul operates on a little bit different plane than I do. And here's what I mean. I preach scripture. Paul wrote scripture. Guess what I do? I, I pray that people would be healed. Paul walks into a room and he goes, hey, Bob, get up, let's go. Bob's been laying on a mat for 15 years. Bob goes, okay, rolls up his mat and walks out with Paul. That's the kind of, kind of thing that Paul has going on. I've been to the hospital I don't know how many times. I can't even keep track. Not so much here, but in the past, I've been in the hospital. I've gone to people's homes. I've been obedient to the scripture. I've been obedient to what God has called me to do. Sometimes I take elders with me, and we take oil along when somebody is sick, and we anoint them with oil like the scripture tells us to. We ask them to confess their sin like scripture tells them to. We confess our sin, and then we pray for their healing. And sometimes God heals them, and sometimes he doesn't. I've never walked into a hospital room and gone like, yo, Pete, hey, let's get up. Let's get out of here. Let's go. You're, you're healed. Let's go. No, just pull those IVs out of your arm. Unhook the monitor thing. You don't need that. Let's go. I've never done that. But guess what? Paul does. He would walk in and go, you ready, Pete? Let's go. Yeah, uh, I've got that. You just let's go. And they walk out completely whole and healed. Paul has this ability to, to do things. He proclaims the gospel, and it does this amazing thing. He's got this unreal spiritual power. When he preaches, when he heals, matter of fact, when he preaches, he blows things up. I don't know if you've read Ephesus or not, or the book of Ephesians, but when he was in Ephesus, he went out and he started preaching. He had a two-year ministry there. And, and the people in, in Ephesus, they were making money off of demonic activity and, and things like that. And then when Paul starts to preach the gospel, People start to come to faith, and all of a sudden, those people who were making money off of all this demonic activity, they're no longer able to make money. And so it starts a riot, and Paul gets run out of town. I've never preached a message to have someone start a riot. I've been cussed at, but I've never started a riot. And so when I look at Paul, I kind of start to think, I'm not even the junior varsity next to this guy. I'm like the B-team ninth grader, you know? I mean, like, yeah, I can do some stuff, but not very well next to Paul. So when we go back to this text, let's keep reading. So it says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of this revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Why is this important to keep Paul from becoming conceited? Because the Bible is clear that the proud God knows from afar, but the humble of spirit he draws near to. So Paul is loved by God, and God says, because I want you close to me, because I want you near to me, I'm going to give you this thorn in the flesh. Now theologians, they've all freaked out about this thing because nobody knows what the thorn in the flesh really was. We don't know how it manifested itself. We don't know if, if it was some kind of a physical ailment or maybe it was an unhealthy lust for women. We have no clue what it was. But what we do know is what, is, what happens next because there's this, this thing that's going to manifest itself 
And it shows us in the next line. It says, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Get this. A messenger of Satan to harass me. To keep me from becoming conceited. Anybody want to be Paul? Here's this superstar. Here's this stud when it comes to the whole thing. I mean, like this guy can just do it all. And so what's going on in the demonic realm is this. They're, going, they're saying to each other, hey, we've got to shut Paul down. Look at him. He's casting demons out of people. He's telling people to get up and walk and healing them. He's, people are getting saved wherever he's going. We've got to shut this fool down. What are we going to do? And then they say, hey, how about if we attach a messenger from the big guy to him? Hey, God, can we attach a messenger of Satan to Paul? And God's like, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, see what happens when you do that. And so they attach this messenger of Satan to Paul, and what it does is it furthers Paul's love for God, Paul's love for the gospel. It keeps him humble and lowly, and it, it attaches to him to these things, and it makes him look more to the glory of God, to bring the glory of God to other people. So you see, even when it's dark, when dark ends up working for light, even what the enemy wants to use as darkness, God uses for light. Let's just keep going because it gets a little bit crazier here with Paul. Because Paul's not saying to this, he, this is, get this, this is not what he's saying. He's not going like, hey God, hey I just really want to thank you for that messenger of Satan you sent my way. It's really awesome. Look at verse 8 what he says. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know what? If we could just get this, if we could get our minds wrapped around this, if we could live in view of this, our lives would look so different than what they look right now. Because there are very few, pe very few people I know who are under weakness and saying, thank you God for weakness, because weakness ties me to Jesus. Instead, most of us are like this. This is our thought. This is our urgent prayer to God. Get me out from under this weakness. Get me out from under this pain. Get me out from this stress. Get me out from the weight of this. Get me out from under the calamity. And it's constant petitioning of get me out, get me out, get me out. But did you hear what Paul said? He said, no. He said, I'm not asking God to get me out. I am going to sit under the weight of it and I am going to let the things of God, these things come on me because when I sit here in my weakness, then I'm in, I am strong because God works through me in a much more powerful way. That's an unbelievable text. Paul knows this far better than any of us, what it means to sit under the weight of weakness. I mean, like, I... The guy was amazing, but I, I don't want his life for the love of money. I'm telling you, 
here's, here's what we know about Paul. Paul takes a bunch of stuff. He was beaten multiple times. He was shipwrecked twice. You want to talk about a really bad day? He literally was shipwrecked, spent a night and a day in the open sea. He finally got on land, and guess what? He was bitten by a snake while he was preaching. Now, if that's not a come on moment, I, I don't know what one would be. Because he's, float, he's shipwrecked, he's floating, finally gets to land. He gathers some people around him. He just goes, hey, come here. I've got this really good news called the gospel of Jesus. Good news of Jesus, I'm going to preach it to you. He's preaching about Jesus, and a snake bites him. He probably goes, come on now, can you give me a little bit of break? I'm doing your work here. This is for you. Can I get a guy get a break? But not Paul. Paul, Paul. Is, is this guy, he, he, was, he was stoned on multiple occasions. And just in case there's some kind of cultural misunderstanding, he wasn't getting high. <laughs> they were throwing big rocks at him, and they left him for dead twice. He's constantly persecuted. He was robbed. Ultimately, he was imprisoned and then killed. And that's our boy. In the middle of all that, he says... I've grown content in this type of pain of life because in it, I'm latched to Jesus and not to other things. So as I wrap up here real quick, an understanding of discipline versus wrath lets you tap into the idea that God's love and mercy are being made manifest to you through difficulty. Well, what would be more cruel of God? To give me the, the dream of my life? For me to write my own script? Here's what my own script would look like. It would be raining C-notes down on my house. My kids, they would get up every morning and send me a text and say, you're the greatest dad ever. We're so blessed to have you in our lives. My wife, Lorinda, when I would say, honey, could you do this for me? She would go, oh, I would love to. She does that most of the time. <laughs> but she would do it all the time. <laughs> and everything would just be, I, I would have fame, I would have wealth, I would have health, I would have all of the things that you could ever imagine that you would think would just make life wonderful but it would be cruel of God to give all that to, my, to me, but not give me himself. Do you know what mercy is? Do you know what grace is? Is when I live through the suffering and the pain of life, that we live with the uncertainty of what 2020 is going to look like for our granddaughter Priscilla as she goes in for, to have a heart transplant. No clue what that's going to look like. No clue how our kids are going to respond. No clue about what's going to take place in our lives. We have no clue about any of that stuff. And yet, the grace and the mercy is that Jesus has given himself to me. And that's worth more than anything I could ever ask for. But what he wants me to experience is to experience him in a deeper way, in a more solid way, in a more relational way. 
And so he's made himself manifest in my life and continues to grow me through discipline. This world holds a lot of troubles. And if you don't know that, you haven't lived long enough yet. They're coming. Loss happens. Loneliness occurs. Depression keeps in. Despair happens. People die. Disease is revealed. You lose your job. And how about this one? Your sin catches up with you. The question is this. Are you under wrath or are you under mercy? Are you under wrath or are you under the discipline, disciplining hand of God? Does God love you and willing to discipline you for your own good or do you just are you experiencing the wrath of God because you're walking in rebellion you've never stepped into relationship I don't know what about you but for me there are times when I have a thought about God at the back of my mind a knowledge I have study you know what it's really easy for a pastor to study about God we do that all the time I've got a myriad of books in there to help me I got places online that I go that give me inspiration that teach me things but that is not what Jesus is calling me to do Jesus is calling me to be in relationship with him Jesus is calling you to be in relationship are you fully experiencing the fullness of that relationship let's pray Father, I want to thank you for your mercy. I know that for some of us, this has really hit close to home. We hurt. We've experienced loss. And in that loss, some of us have even sinned, rebellion, and grown angry. We may even have shaken our fists at heaven. So I would simply ask today that you would give us new eyes, that you would allow us to see your mercy, your kindness, your grace, your love for us that you would lead us into holiness, that we would experience your righteousness, that you would grant to us a blamelessness in Jesus because your discipline comes to those you love. Help us not to cry out, get me out of here, but help me to sit here. Help our prayer to say, God, I want to sit under your disciplining hand because your grace is sufficient for me. So, Father, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would draw us into yourself. Let us walk in relationship with you. And that we would know, God, your love in a deeper, more intimate way. We pray that you would help us in this. We pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen.